This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Okay, cool. So, first of all, we want to thank our, uh, our wonderful host, Soho House Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. And we want to thank uh, the organizers of this event, Jay and the team at TLV Salon. Thank you so much. And lastly, you lovely, lovely people, thank you so much for coming, our wonderful audience. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Uh, we're two nice Jewish boys, by the way. Uh, we have a podcast. Host. Yeah, we have a podcast in English. You can subscribe on Spotify. And yeah, let's uh, jump right yeah, into we're gonna it. Yeah, ah. we're going to do uh, He's questions. He's Eitan. I'm Eitan. I'm Naor. Naor. And we'll introduce Yahya in a minute. Uh, we're going to do questions at the end, so stick around. We'd love to hear from as many of you as possible. Yeah. All right, great. So picture this. Yahya Mohamed, an Israeli-born Muslim from the city of Um el-Fahim, posts a simple photograph on Facebook. On the surface, it seems like just another post, but this single act reverberates through his life, shaking his world to the core. The backdrop, a grim headline about three Jewish teenagers who have gone missing in the West Bank. For Yahya, this wasn't just news, it was a deeply personal event, with one of the teenagers being the same age as Yahya. But as the notifications began pouring in, the weight of that one post, that one choice, became evident. His world was turned upside down, his life redefined by a single click. So what does life look like when your entire narrative is shifted by a fleeting online moment? Join us as we journey through Yahya's captivating tale. Yahya Mahamid is a trailblazing Israeli educator, activist, and mentor, fervently dedicated to the empowerment and integration of Israel's Arab youth, a rare Israeli Muslim who stepped forward to volunteer in the IDF. He's now diligently working towards his bachelor's in education at Ono Academic College, and as a formidable advocate against anti-Semitism and misinformation, Yahya ceaselessly champions dialogue and understanding. We're thrilled, beyond thrilled, to welcome him to the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast for this very special live episode at Soho House Tel Aviv. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can I take it off? Take a mic. Yeah, I think that's kind of important. Or I could just use my Israeli voice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Yahya, you grew up in Um El Fahem. What was it like for you to grow up in Um El Fahem? Well, thank you everybody for showing up. Thank you for coming. Um, hard question to start with, but let me paint you the picture. Who here has passed Um El Fahem? Past it, going to Haifa, going to the Golan, going to all the beautiful areas in Israel. Nice. So when we pass Omel Fakhim, we really pass a lot of things, not just a sign on the side of the road. Omel Fakhim is a very ancient uh, location where people have settled for many, many years, thousands of years. Omel Fakhim is the most recent name that came to this place. Omel Fakhim is the third largest Arab Isra Israeli Arab uh, city in Israel. It is the economic center of the region. We have seven malls, we have uh, an ancient city, an old city, we have a city center, we have many, many things. And El Babu yeah. restaurant. And the, Barbu, uh, the Baburi re restaurant, yes. <laughs> it's not sponsored by them, by the way, so. <laughs> uh, we have many things. One of them are the art gallery, uh, is the art gallery in Um El Fahim, which is a hotspot for Israeli Arabs and Jews to come up, to come together and express their feelings and opinion through art. And I just recently learned that it's actually there's an NGO in the United States where it's called, it's the Friends of uh, the Omel Fahim Art Gallery. So they're also registered in the US. It's a big deal. It caught the attention of many people in the state and now this, this uh, art gallery is being turned into a full-fledged museum. Uh, so this is a step in the right direction. The, for the people growing up in Omel Fahim, Omel Fahim is a very special place. And I say this, uh, 
not only because I'm from Um Omel Fahim. Um Omel Fahim has turned into the center for many, many cases, including the political ones. In the 90s, we had a political movement called the Islamic Movement, with the leader of this movement being from Um Omel Fahim. He started a political movement in Um Omel Fahim, a very extremist organization, a very extremist movement, uh, took over many, many municipalities in, uh, for the Israeli Arabs. And uh, in 2015, the Israeli uh, government has stepped a foot and put an end to this organization and labeled them as a terrorist organization. But unfortunately for us, the, the citizens of Um al-Fakhim, we had uh, those, this group of people control our town for 15 years, almost 20 years. They are still ruling the town until today, unofficially. Many of the, gov many of the organizations uh, uh, places, offices, businesses have changed their name uh, to something else, and it's, they're still running under the radar. So it's a very interesting place. You grew up within Israel, but you, you grew up with a very anti-Israel identity. Uh, I was never taught anything about the Holocaust. I was Hebrew. Hebrew. Uh, I learned the word misada, restaurant, in the 12th grade. Wow. Yeah. How? Uh, yeah. How did you learn it? How did I learn it? They wrote it on the wall. The teacher walks in, writes three, three words on the wall and, uh, in Hebrew, and that's what, that's what you have to learn today, three, three Hebrew words. This is not uh, just because, and we didn't have a lazy teacher or anything. This was uh, a perpetrated uh, process to keep me from connecting with you. Language is a, is a, is a massive uh, uh, point to connect people. Because uh, it's a very interesting, it's a very uh, a cornerstone for connecting people. So if I don't have the language, I don't have the skills, I don't have, I don't, I can't portray the image, the word, the 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 point that I'm trying to make worldwide. What what did you learn in school? What did I learn in school? I learned uh, English, very little. Uh, I uh, learned uh, history. Funny enough, history started, I don't know if you realize also, that I think it was, uh, I don't think it's taught in, in Israeli schools, Jewish schools. Apparently, history starts from 1948. <laughs> Nothing before it. <laughs> so all the history classes just happened to start at uh, 1948. And uh, within one point of view, obviously, I was never taught about the Israeli uh, point of view in history. As I said, I was never taught about the Holocaust. I was... Uh, kind of left out on a few things. Uh, but those are schools inside the Israeli education system. Oh, absolutely. These are schools that are within the Israeli education system. The Israeli education system works hand in hand with the municipality. I'm not sure any of you uh, have gotten the notification that the schools, uh, the teachers union is going on strike because one, two, three. We have an Arab teacher uh, union as well, and if they don't like one of the books that was introduced by the State of Israel, the Ministry of Education, they will just go on strike. One of the latest books that they went on strike with was called uh, My Identity, which spoke as an identity of mine being an Israeli Arab. It was a big taboo, it was not accepted, uh, not spoken about, and they went on strike three days into the school year before the, uh, the State of Israel said, okay, we." We will take this book off the list, and uh, you can Didn't continue. even hear about it. Exactly. So this is one of the things that we will touch, touch base on. This is one of the main points why I'm thankful to the two nice Jewish boys to bring me here so I can bring the Arab world. That is, we're in Yafo, by the way, <laughs> 10 minutes away, here at the Soho House. So let's maybe take it back to the story we started with. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that post and what led up to it? About the post. Um, actually, the story is connected to here, to Tel Aviv. Uh, after growing up with such a, a negative uh, view to Israel, I came to work in one of the hotels over here at the beach. And I was uh, working in the room service. Um, I wasn't able to speak Hebrew. I was very worried of how I will be accepted. Uh, but uh, surprise, surprise, I found myself in good company. I formed uh, friends with uh, my Jewish counterparts. Uh, it was a life-changing event for me whenever I was showed the Israeli side of the conflict, the Israeli side of the debate, something that I was not taught about my entire life. And uh, when, the three, when I heard the news of the three boys uh, getting kidnapped, at this point, nobody knew what uh, happened to them, Iyal, Gilad, and Naftali. Uh, we were the same age, and... Uh, I, made, uh, I joined the campaign called Bring Back Our Boys. I uh, posted a picture of me with an Israeli flag. And two hours later, we, um, 
my life changed, to put it lightly. Um, I was visiting my grandmother, and uh, I get a phone call from an unknown number. And once I answer it, I hear on the other line somebody saying, check your phone. I hang up the phone, and I look at my phone, and I find the picture that I just took a few hours ago uh, circling all over the Arab media, uh, Egypt, Jordan included, the West Bank. Uh, news pages in Um al-Fakhim also shared it. I remember I went into the comments to see what our classmates, my neighbors, are thinking of this. And I found an endless wall of comments of death threats. I found people that I sat with, I studied with, I uh, thought they were my friends, writing publicly where to find me, and where's my house, and what do I, where do I study, and uh, for people to come and harm me. But uh, the two comments that I still carry with me today is uh, two people that one of them wrote, I want to hook him to my pickup truck and drag him until he dies. And the other one was uh, writing, where's his house? I want to go and shoot him. And actually, I don't share this, but one of my classmates, the one that was studying with me in high school, uh, replied to that uh, comment, where's his house, and actually wrote, where's my house in the town. It was watching uh, friends and family, neighbors, classmates, friends turn on you. I was 17 at the time, and I didn't understand why uh, I'm finding myself in such a situation. How, how real did it get? Oh, it got, it got real. It got, it got Arab real. Uh, there, was, uh, there was a bomb. Uh, no, let me take it from the start. There was a lot of death threats. A lot of death threats. Uh, a lot of death threats. All my family and friends stopped talking to me. Again, we have to take it from the perspective of, a, of an Israeli Arab. That doesn't understand what the challenges are for Israel abroad. Um, doesn't understand the reason to do Hasbara. Most of uh, Israel education, my family still doesn't know. My mother until today doesn't know what I'm engaged in most of the time. I did explain it many, many times, but she doesn't understand why it's important to preserve this country uh, and defend it. Because for her, this is a normal life. We live in Israel in a very normal life, so to speak, to some extent. Uh, the food is kosher, the identity is Jewish, uh, so no, it doesn't need to protect in like the normal eyes. Um, a lot of people didn't accept it, and uh, I was blacked, outcasted from my family. Uh, school was off limits, I couldn't go to school, didn't go to graduation. Uh, I had a house, I was on a house arrest for two months, and I had a police car underneath my house for two months. And uh, it ended with a bomb that I just mentioned. Um, a real bomb? A real bomb. A homemade bomb. Uh, everybody called me obsessed, and I shouldn't be worried. Everybody told me that. But uh, one day, before I got into my car, I was walking around the car. I always walk around the car to check out the tires and to see if anybody has, mis has placed something. And that day, actually, somebody placed something. It was a makeshift home uh, pipe bomb that they placed just underneath the tire. There was a bomb squad. There was a whole, it was a whole spiel. Uh, as they say in Um al -Fakhim. As they would say in Um al -Fakhim, yeah. <laughs> uh, the bomb squad came. I remember, actually, it was just, just, just before Passover. I remember the police station, the head of the police station called me in. They sent a police car to pick me up. And they told me to pack a bag. And he told me, here's a police car. Tell them where to go. You're going out of the town. I can't protect you anymore over here. And that's what happened. I left Um al -Fakhim and I went to Arad which is uh, very, very Even worse. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah. But to, I think to understand what led you to actually post this picture with the flag and all that m mindset you were in, it's, I think it's, it's, it's vital to understand the home, the home you grew up in. Right? Uh, yeah. So how would you describe this home? Uh, the home is uh, an Arab home, as complicated as it gets. We don't have a family tree. We have an Amazon uh, forest. Uh, some of my family is in the Palestinian Authority, very high ranking. Uh, me being in the IDF, the joke was that we needed just one person to join the UN, and we had the whole conflict in one family. Um, and uh, some of my friends uh, that I knew, one of my friends uh, uh, that I knew uh, dropped out of uh, the world one day, and uh, he went to Syria, 2012, to join ISIS. So, um, where is he now? He's uh, he's dead. The American Air Force took care of that. Wow. Yeah. But but like, did you grow up in a relatively open-minded? Yeah. 
house. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the family is very, uh, in, in Arab terms, there is no secular and religious. There is just Masurti. Uh, Masurti. Um, and uh, you know, non uh, non religious at all. So you're, most of the people go to like the religious. Most of the women cover their head. Most of the women don't drink. But this is not out of religious reasons. This is because out of habit and uh, cultural norms, so to speak. My family is one of those families. It's the majority in Israel. Uh, Israeli Arabs are exposed to many many cultures in Israel, and uh, you could see that. You could see it. Uh, one of the main reasons, one of the main challenges that I have uh, when I meet Arabs. Uh, from Syria, from Lebanon, from Egypt, is not to speak with them in Hebrew because I don't know what the words are in Arabic. So the family is very modern, very uh, open-minded. Some people are still not talking to me until today about for their personal reasons. But but you still grew up in that system. Do you? What did you think about Jews growing up? Like, do you remember what your thoughts were at age eight, nine, ten? Age nine, eight, ten. I knew about the Jews. What they wanted me to know about the Jews, which is absolutely nothing. You can't attack uh, an idea, an ideology, an ethnic group, a religion without uh, with having information about uh, this uh, identity, so to speak. Uh, I knew nothing of uh, Jewish customs, Jewish religions. Uh, I used to say Chag uh, Sameach for every little thing. Uh, and then somebody explained to me that uh, you know Yom Kippur is not a Chag, it's like a whole thing. And then I learned there's like a different things. We never had those moments because need I say, uh, that uh, most of the Israeli Arabs live in northern Israel. 70% lives in northern Israel. And in northern Israel, it's not like Tel Aviv and Yafo. It's not really you cross a street. You have to cross a highway with a car to get to a Jewish uh, community. There was no interaction. I knew nothing. And that's why uh, the hate. But did you have hateful ideas yeah, or thoughts I, yeah, about yeah. Jews? It's not, it's, not, it's not, I wouldn't say like hateful. It was like white noise in the background at all times. It's a bad image. It's a very bad image. It's... Uh, it's, they never tell you, again, we're in Israel. We're talking about an Israeli Arab town. There is anti-Semitic uh, statements and stuff being said, but never like uh, the situation in Gaza or the West Bank where they say, go stab and go attack and do this. But there was a lot of anti-Semitic uh, stuff in the background. Uh, swastikas are all over the town. Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, swastikas are all over the town. Uh, no education in Holocaust, as they said, so they don't realize anything about what happened. Um, the State of Israel in the news in Al Jazeera is uh, all occupied territory. Uh, every Jew on the, in the land of Israel is a settler. Doesn't matter if you're in Tel Aviv or in you're in the Gush Etzion area, you're still a settler. Um, and what? And did they? Like the consensus was one day we will all be in Palestine and the Jews won't be here. Or depends, is it safe? depends on what day? What day? You, what day of the month you ask that question? Because on the 28th of the month, uh, Social Security payments hit. So, yeah, there's a, there's, a, it's a, there's a double standard. There's a massive double standard. Israeli Arabs, all, all of the Israeli Arabs understand life is great in Israel compared to our neighbors, but we're not comparing ourselves to our neighbors uh, because we are much better. And uh, we have, diff I'm sure most of you have heard uh, the Arab community has been making headlines uh, in Israel recently with uh, um, the violence and stuff. Yeah, we'll get to that. In we'll get to that, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you joined the IDF. I wasn't as easy as that. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a bit about it. So uh, I found myself on a, on a tour. I really found myself on a tour to educate. I realized later on in life, a few months after, I realized that what I was taught is not an Umm al-Fakhim issue. Uh, all the lies and misconceptions about Israel is not an Umm al-Fakhim thing. It's a worldwide thing. And I went on a, an advocacy adventure so to speak, to go around the world and educate uh, people and elevate Israel's image around the world, answer tough questions, empower the Jewish communities worldwide. Um, uh, but something was still lacking. I felt that something was lacking within my service, and I went to join the IDF. I uh, went to the Lishkat Gius in Tveria, the recruitment office in Tveria, and uh, what do you do? I give them my ID and I said, I, uh, I, need, I want a draft. And they're like, are you sure? Are you sure? I said, yeah, take me. <laughs> they, show, they showed me the way to the volunteer's office and I went to the volunteer's office and uh, they tried to draft me first time to the Bedouin Battalion. Who here knows about the Bedouin Battalion in the IDF? Okay, 
So the Bedouin Battalion is, is, is a combat unit, is one of the most prestigious uh, tracking, the trackers that you hear about in the news. But it's, just to clarify, you're not a Bedouin. I'm not a Bedouin. I'm, yeah. In Israel, there are Bedouins and non-Bedouins. So are you a tracker? I'm not a tracker. <laughs> uh, they try to draft me into there, but my mission was that I want to draft with uh, one of the uh, brigades, one of the combat brigades, in order to integrate myself into the Israeli community more and more. So I refused to join the, the, the Bedouin battalion. And as a volunteer, you get to choose. It's not like I disobeyed an order or something. So after three tries, it was like a conversion. Every time I try, they turn me down. Every time I try, they turn me down. Uh, after three tries, I was in um, 18th of March, 20, 2018. I was in South Africa. And uh, I got a phone call from the recruitment office. And they asked me, can you draft tomorrow? And I said, yes. So I went, flew from South Africa. I was, in, I was during an Israel, Israel Apartheid Week activity. I left South Africa. <laughs> 24 hours later, I found myself with a nice buzz cut uh, <laughs> and a great green uniform, which I wore for three years. Beautiful years. <laughs> uh, how, how did you? Uh, so, uh, tell us about your first days. I mean, you first. you dra you draft into the army. You show up on base. Yeah. Basic training. What's that like? I mean, you don't think you're a young uh, Moroccan from uh, yeah. Batiam or something. So apparently, the reason I draft I drafted the Nachal, the Nachal Infantry Brigade. I was in Gdud Hamishim. Um, so apparently, the reason I drafted the Nachal is that I sent a personal letter to the uh, the base commander. Uh, for uh, a boot camp for Nahal. And he told my uh, Pluga that I was coming, and he told him the backstory of who I am. I was very worried. The first moment, the first interactions are very, very important. So I was very worried of how I would be accepted, but my company commander and my personal commander were very accepting, and they brought the whole class, and they welcomed me. Because I was in South Africa, I missed the actual draft by 24 hours, but when I arrived, everybody was settled in. I was the last soldier to get there. So there was a nice welcome, a very nice welcome. Were there Arabs in the Nahal before? So I, I thought I'm the only one, because I uh, specifically asked to be in Nahal and stuff. Surprisingly not. I was uh, one of uh, five Arabs in different brigades that joined Nahal. Uh, the Nahal brigadier at the time, uh, Dan Goldfuss, Brigadier Dan Goldfuss, he, was, he had a vision of integrating Israeli Arabs and Israeli Bedouins into Nahal and not just following uh, the tradition, so to speak, of sending Israeli Arab volunteers into the Bedouin battalion. Excuse my ignorance, but five simultaneous to you, or five, five in all of history? No, 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 no. no. Okay. <laughs> five in all of history. That's that's. I think it, I think it says something about the situation, no, right? That five. that question needs to be. No, no, no. It's uh, I yeah. think four drafts a year. What was it? Three three drafts a year, and in my draft was uh, because. Um, I think I read that today about 1,000 Arabs, Muslims, and Christians recruited the IDF every year. That's more or less the, the numbers. They never released the numbers. They never released the numbers because it's a security matter. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's really not a lot. It depends on who you ask. Uh, we hear about 1,000, so to speak. But uh, I think uh, I thought about drafting every Arab to the IDF and everything. But uh, we need uh, the work. The important work is not done on uniform. And but, my personal opinion. But there is a great risk, right? You can't like going. You cannot go back to Umid Fakhim in uniform. You obviously. Can. No, but uh, but I will share this good news of you if, with you. I'm not the only combat soldier in Umid Fakhim. Now, I helped draft three other guys, and uh, another guy from my family, my cousin, went and joined a combat uh, unit. And the IDF is actually serving in Gaza now. Uh, he's in the Bedouin battalion. <laughs> Did you have anybody question your motives when you were joining? Was anybody kind of like, you know, mm, wondering why you interesting. were joining the idea? So Nahal, Nahal is known for integrating many, many people. And one of those people um, was the yeshiva guys. Yeshiva guys from the Shomron, most of them. They have never met an Arab face to face on equal grounds. And they, lo and behold, they join the IDF, they hold the gun, they go in uniform, and who do they meet? They meet Yahya Mahamid, and they meet uh, other Arabs in, uh, in the Pluga. It was very, very hard to get along at first, not because we were not getting along, because we are in the army, so you run a lot, and you do push-ups, and you climb a rope, and you stand in two lines for most of the time without no reason, but it's part of the process. Um, but later on, once you understand the IDF is a great melting pot, and it's, it's really an understatement, because once you're the property of the IDF, so to speak, you have a personal number and you have a uniform, you are not who you are. You are the property of the IDF, and therefore, 
you're equal. And all those labels of Arab, Muslim, Christian, Tzfoni, um, Dromi, Tel Avivi, Yerushalmi, all of those don't matter at the end of the day if you're both eating the same food and under the same training and everything. So at the end of the day, we really connected. Well, I want to I yeah. ask a follow-up to that. I'm wondering if, and this is kind of going into politics a little bit and maybe a bit of a controversial question, but do you, because you spoke about wanting to integrate you know, and draft all Arabs. Do you? But you also spoke about the, the 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 childhood that you had, and the beliefs that were kind of drilled into you, and the anti-Semitism, and the fact that you have relatives that are high up, high ranking in in um, in the West Bank in the PA. Do you not see kind of uh, an issue there? Meaning, if the ranks are open. Doesn't that pose a certain risk to the IDF? It does, it does. And the IDF is not in charge of vetting the people. We actually have the, the ISA in charge of uh, vetting the people, the Israeli uh, uh, Shabak. I hope they're not here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're here recruiting. Oh, great. You won't know if they're here. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, so to speak, uh, once they get the green light from the Shabak, that's what happens. But unfortunately... Things, uh, things fall between the cracks. We had, uh, we had the news, I don't know if any of you followed the news, we had uh, actually a Hamas recruited Bedouin uh, that went into the Bedouin battalion and actually stole a weapon. Uh, and the Shabak was uh, very fast to uh, find him and uh, find everything and expose the deal. Uh, you hang on to that part, but you left the other part. As I said, I wanted to draft all Arabs, but then I realized that the most important work is not done in uniform. Uh, we sleep every night safe and sound in Tel Aviv and we wake up tomorrow morning to a great statement from the IDF spokesperson that the IDF operated and the Shabak and the Magav and uh, Atsru, we uh, arrested X uh, number of terrorists. Those numbers are not just thrown out of the blue. Those are people on the ground actually operating and giving information. And these are not IDF soldiers. These are not people in uniform. I learned of... Uh, of a great uh, man who lived in Gaza and uh, helped within the, uh, there was a brigade in 2014, there was a brigade trying to get in and uh, into Gaza and uh, there was a, a street that was filled with bombs, filled with bombs, just waiting for the whole brigade to go in and they, they, would, they would detonate and the whole neighborhood would just go up in the air and that man went and disabled all the bombs, knowing that this would lead to his certain death, and he did that and saved hundreds of Israeli soldiers, and that's what happened after he was killed by Hamas. And uh, if you go to the Atari's core to remember all the fallen soldiers and fallen security forces, you will not find his name, you will not any find anything about him. But I hope you know that the way we operate in the West Bank, uh, in Iran, all of that is with people without a uniform. But uh, another follow-up. <laughs> But that, that is the outlier. And I think there was a survey done of uh, West Bank and Gazans about the various terror happening within Israel. There's one, I think, on the 2016 wave of terror attacks. And I think 80% of Gazans supported and something like It's lower in the West Bank, but something like 60. But, you know, 80% of statistics are bullshit. But what I'm wondering is, supported like, what? supported the wave of knife attacks, terror attacks. I'm... I'm wondering if like you have this, which I think is great, this optimism towards Arab-Israeli integration that you know maybe now it's low, it's in the dirt, but we'll, we'll get it to where it needs to be. Or if you have a different perspective and you think that most people, most Gazans, most West Bank Palestinians are actually against terror. Um, there is your average Palestinian and your average Gazan and your average Israeli Arab is not a threat to the security of the state. Uh, these are people that were recruited or they were fed this misinformation, et cetera, et cetera. Again, as I said, I'm back from the idea of drafting every Arab because I realize that's not uh, very yail, very effective. Uh, but we should not uh, be uh, in this position where every Arab we meet, we, uh, so to speak, uh, look him up and then approach to shake. Uh, there's a reason the IDF is called the Israel Defense Forces. It's not the attack forces. We are very friendly. We only defend. We only uh, approach our neighbors with peace. Um, and so to speak, uh, one of the base rules of the IDF, one of the main uh, thing of uh, IDF spirit is Kvod Adam. 
human respect, a human life dignity. Uh, the Nahal motto for the brigade is the human advantage. Those are not ink on paper. These are things that actually happen on the ground. And uh, unfortunately, it is known not just for Israelis and for many, for many security people is that the bad guy always had the, has the advantage and he picks the time and place and we have to defend. So you can't just, you choose the time and place and you choose the person. That would be... One but, more, one wait, more wait, 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 wait. Okay, uh, I gotta push back on this a little bit. Um, because uh, when you say like most of, I don't know if you refer to Israeli Arabs or Arabs in general in Gaza and the West Bank, when you say most of them are harmless and nothing to be afraid of, I mean, if we can agree that a majority, a huge majority in Gaza, in the West Bank, and probably also in Israeli Arabs, are for the right of return, for example, and the right of return means my, like, I'm gone. Either I'm dead or I'm in Europe, right? I cannot exist here if the full right of return um, comes to be. So if that is the case, how can I be so chill about their sentiment and about their, like, uh, politics towards me? Oh, no, no, I'm not saying to be chill. This is the guy that just told you who I walk around my car before I get in it. Uh, it's not to be chill. It's just to, to maintain the idea. We have became to normalize so many things where we're going to the mall and the Arab gets stopped and the Jew gets in without being searched. This is a normal thing in Israel. Nobody, nobody even bats an eye to that. Uh, uh, being an Arab is not a reason to suspect. Um, I think like not suspect for direct like uh, he's gonna murder me. But that's the norm. But, but okay. But is it safe to assume that most Arabs don't want me here? Ideally, I would I would think otherwise. Most Arabs are busy living. Most Arabs are busy working. Most Arabs are busy with our own challenges. Just like I'm sure most of this room is busy with work and life and friends and et cetera, et cetera. If somebody wants to expel the Arabs and have a plan in this room, please meet me outside uh, uh, after the event. But uh, we have to stop looking at a, such a distance thing at the Arabs and speaking in such vague terminology. Because uh, yes, maybe I have an American accent and it makes you forget. I blend in very well in that world. And uh, I'm not very integrated in Israel, but I do hear the news and I hear everything. Israeli Arabs are human beings. It goes without saying. And this community was disadvantaged in Israel and was put to the side for many, many years. And now we're reaping uh, the, the fruits of our uh, labor, so to speak. Uh, if you told me I could split the Israeli history, the Israeli Arab history in two parts, it would be post January 1st, 2016 and pre January 1st, 2016. And I'm sure Tel Avivians would remember when an Israeli Arab gunman opened fire in Dizengoff over here and the Israeli security forces were looking for him for three, three days. And then the Israeli uh, government and body understood that whatever problems they have in Umm al-Fakhim would find their way into Dizengoff. And now this is such a big deal because now terror is Terror is just moving along. I have to go on this. Follow up? Yeah, I have to follow up on this. Because th this is a, a point, I think, like you're making a connection between the situation, the economic situation and the polit political situation in Fahim, or how you say it, they've been uh, neglected, they've been, uh, you know, nobody saw them, et cetera, resources, et cetera, et cetera. And you uh, strike a line between that and terror attacks in Tel Aviv. And I think it's uh, it's it's a isn't it a bit problematic because because it's uh, you're a bit taking off responsibility from from terrorists. Oh no no absolutely a terrorist is a terrorist. I still uh, do miluim in the IDF and I'm happy to pull the trigger so to speak. Um, I just say as responsible Western community as we are, also although we are in the Middle East, we have to understand that when an, uh, with an, when an Israeli Arab, as I, as, I, as I mentioned, we give out to those demands of not teaching the Israeli Arabs that they're Israelis, of uh, not making sure that the Israeli Arabs have a non-formal uh, education program after school, that there are almost zero parks in Umm al-Fakhim that are ready to use, and this goes across the board for many, many things, and not even to go to the thing in the Negev where they don't have schools, electricity, and water, for many other reasons. This is not a fault of one, one person. 
there is a result for such a thing. So what would you do? Would you like, because to impose... Integrate, 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 integrate. With How education, so? with education, with jobs, with uh, culture and TV, etc., uh, etc. Et we're all ambassadors to the, to the state of Israel. We're all ambassadors to the Jewish nation. Uh, anybody who holds the flag of Israel on his shoulder or in his heart or in his mind all the time, it's not just a flag, it's to represent. It's a thing, and people sometimes forget, and we don't understand that this is, it will lead to such a bad dispolarization of the two nations, which the terrorists will take advantage of, obviously, as we saw. So let's switch gears for a second. Such a heavy subject. I'm yeah, so it sorry. Is, it I is. see the crowd. But this wouldn't be the two nice Jewish boys podcast if we weren't so argumentative. So let's switch gears for a second um, and, and talk a bit about your family. You said that you were outcast completely, but it's, it sounded like you're still in touch with your mom. So who, who exactly are you in touch with? Who are you not? How, what does your relationship look like with your family today? And do you go back to Umel Do Fakhim? I go back to Umel Fakhim? The $1 million question. Yes, I do. Oh, man. Yes, I do. I go back into the town. I go only for Under family Under disguise? Events. No, do you no. Have like a, no, no. I have a, like a fake beard and everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I go only for events. I don't go just to because. And I don't go walking around the town because that would invoke uh, problems. Uh, I was not in touch with my mother before I drafted to the IDF, and once I drafted to the IDF, I was a lone soldier. And the reason, the way you get recognized as a lone soldier is uh, the IDF calls up your parents, actually, and they ask, are you in touch with your son? Does your son live with you? And when my company commander called and said, are you in touch with Yahya? And my mother asked, who is this? He identified himself as a company commander in the IDF. She said, you got the wrong number. My son is not in the army. So he broke the news to her. Uh, they didn't, she didn't know that I drafted. And he uh, encouraged her to come back into contact with me. And she did. And she came back to my uh, tekes, my ceremony. And uh, I still do remember after like eight months of uh, combat training and stuff, we got the beret. And it was such a, a hooray moment. And my mother comes and she says, you did all of that for a hat? <laughs> <laughs> So I had to go into explaining the, the norms of the IDF and why is this, uh, this uh, beret is very important and what it, what it, what it represents. Uh, I'm in touch with my mother. I, I'm semi-in touch with my sister, uh, some of my cousins. I'm still in touch with my uh, Palestinian side of the, the, the family. Um, so the Palestinian side is more open Oh, big time, big time, big than time. Than the actual big Israeli time, big time. side. Big time. We, uh, we live in a very complicated world. We live in a very complicated world. My cousin from the West Bank comes to visit us during Eid al-Adha, a, a holiday after Ramadan. He comes, visits us. I take him to the Golan, and I show him around. And of course, I tell him the history, and he's very intrigued. He's very high-ranking. He loves the tour. And every picture of him I take, I make sure there's an Israeli flag in the background. <laughs> He stands on a tank, uh, one of the tanks in the Golan, and I tell him the story, uh, Tel Chai, all of the places. He goes back and posts those pictures to, to, to the Facebook. He was very cheeky. He tried to cut the flag out of uh, a couple of pictures. Uh, one Doesn't picture, ask you to hold up a help sign? No. <laughs> uh, he posts a picture, and uh, he gets questioned, because I was in one of the pictures, and he, yeah. Facebook tags you automatically. He, I was quest he was questioned about what is his relationship with me. He said, I'm just an Israeli guy that he met on the tour. Uh, so he took down the pictures. It's very complicated, very, very complicated. And, and with your father, is it okay to ask? Uh, uh, you certainly can ask. Uh, the reason I don't mention my father uh, is because he passed away. I'm sorry. When yeah, I, I was I one, I didn't know him. Um, he was actually a victim of violence in the community. So uh, we would go into that, and oh, I would yeah, explain. Yeah. yeah, I got that's... a big stack of questions here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, if, if uh, your father was a victim... To that, maybe we talk a little bit about that because, yeah, I, I think um, the numbers are like, we're getting close to 200 uh, murders um, in this year. This year alone, um, between uh, 218 and 2022, we had 731 homicide victims were uh, in general, and 70% of them were Arabs. And Arabs are like, what, 20% of the population. So that's times th three, um, they're part in the population. 
So uh, it's one of the biggest problems uh, we're facing. Now, I, I see, so if you ask the political divide in Israel, the left blames the state, generally, and the right blames um, also uh, the, the judicial system, maybe, but also the people, like, because change has to come from within. So how do you see th this uh, issue? Uh, I have a big problem, not just, as I said, with the uh, violence that's going on in our communities. I have a problem with normalization of uh, such uh, abnormal activities. Uh, we have become so... Um, not, we don't feel desensitized to the fact of uh, life being lost, either in a terrorist attack or in a violent act. Uh, I can tell you for a fact that uh, when we speak about the crime in the Arab world, we're not speaking of uh, your average uh, knife pocket, um, I don't know, lurking in a dark alley kind of guy. We're speaking of lawyers, accountants, uh, mayors, mayors sometimes, Knesset, um, as we discussed. Uh, uh, You're talking about the victims or the perpetrators? The perpetrators. And this is not people that you would expect for them to come here. Uh, the crime in the Israeli Arab community is mostly legal. And I say that because the money is legal, the workers are legal, everything is legal. The act of carrying out the, the violence is not legal, and it's usually uh, through contractors. Now you don't have to do the dirty work. Now you go to a contractor who's in charge of this. Before, recently, uh, there was a big change. Uh, there were unwritten rules, and those rules were no women, no children, no elderly. Uh, but as you saw uh, recent uh, events, uh, we have seen uh, whole families getting wiped off, off of the face of the earth. Um, we did mention numbers. You will get a notification probably before midnight tonight that something also happened in the Arab world. Uh, we're speaking of uh, families, uh, extended families, brothers, sisters, kids, mothers, um, that just get absolutely dismantled because of this serious single event. Uh, I know of a family in Umm al-Fakhim that no brothers were left, no sisters were left, no kids were left, nothing. We have a family that was, the husband was murdered, uh, the son-in-law was murdered, uh, the son was murdered, um, the mother was just shot in the shoulder and the perpetrator went inside the house and shot her in the head, and she somehow survived. She went into the hospital, and her other daughter went to visit her, and they were just waiting at the hospital, and when the daughter went back, they stopped her car on the highway and shot her. Shot the daughter, and the daughter died. The mother is still in coma. She doesn't know that this happened to her daughter. So you can just imagine what sort of things uh, happen in those communities. And I'm not saying there's a single side to put the finger at and say this is the wrong thing and if we stop this everything is going to stop but uh, the Israeli system has realized uh, at the end of the day uh, the state of Israel is in charge of the, the control and the protection of its citizens uh, the police got the order in 1953 that they're in charge of the order in this city we can blame, we can say that there's a par, there's a disadvantage in the non-formal education system and the way we bring up Arabs in this, uh, in this country and in the community, but we are a state, we have a flag, we have an army, we have everything. We cannot just let this happen. I know of no state, no country, that would see 700, 200, whatever the number is, even three, go on, get murdered, citizens get murdered, and... Uh, no tanks are moving into the town to, to like level it up, so to speak, with those people that are in it. The people are known. As I said, they work through contractors, so it's very hard to have a, an evidence, so to speak. Uh, these are very professional people. Um, they went inside of a house, a crime family called Abul Tef in, in the up north, and I'm sure you've heard it on Ynet. Uh, they caught 700 million shekel in cash. In cash. That's just pocket money. That's just pocket money. Without the cars, without the stuff. If you want to imagine 700 million shekel in cash, it would be probably half of this room just in cash from ground to floor, the, from floor to the ceiling. It's a lot of money. Nothing, none of this is going on under the radar. We just are very slow at processing things. And Were the uh, perpetrators of your father's uh, murder uh, ever caught? 
the perpetrators were caught. Um, it was uh, his own uh, brother. Um, we had a dispute in the family, and my father got angry, and uh, he went to his brother, and there was a physical fight, and it uh, just happens that my uncle, I'm still in touch with him today, I talk with him, uh, it happens that uh, he, ha he was eating a watermelon, he was slicing a watermelon, and he had a knife in his, uh, in his uh, hand. He was charged with... Uh, with uh, um, 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 no, no, no. He was charged with uh, manslaughter. Oh, he was charged right. manslaughter because uh, he was in self-defense, and it was this. As hard as it is for me to speak about this, uh, I never knew my father, and I took, I put myself. I always put myself in the other person's shoe. Uh, we're speaking about a person who lived with his brother his entire life, knew this man, grew up with this man, ate from the same plate as this man, and then he has to live with the fact that he did this. Uh, so I decided not to push for the guilt and punishment and this, and uh, forgive, forgive him. Wow. First it, of all, I'm very sorry to hear, but that's not, that's not sort of um, kind of characteristic of the crimes that we're talking about no, in the Arab no. community. No, 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 no. no, but it depends. I'm sorry, Eitan, but it, it depends, because I would divide the crimes into two, roughly. Okay, one are related to crime organizations and wars between crime organizations with some casualties, some murders of families of crime, of um, and by crime organizations and bystanders. That's one division. But the other is of violence in the, what they call it in Hebrew and it's been, you know, people don't like, no, like the violence, murder of, of the respect family respect, something like that, which honor of the family, yes, thank you. So, um, and that's the other kind, of, and that's the one I think, because I think we can all agree that we need more cops, we need more resources, we need more punishment, okay, we can all agree, good. Now, if we put it aside and let's focus on, on the murder within the family, and of women who are being murdered, of this uh, gay uh, woman who was murdered. Uh, the girl, she was 18, she was a lesbian, and she was murder for, murdered by her brothers. Um, so there, it seems to me, there's not a whole lot the state can do. You know, because if, if a brother decides to, to murder his sister, the police, you know, they can punish him, they can send him to a life sentence, but it's, it seems. So I want you to address a little bit about um, the issues that, that cause this problem. The honor of the family is very big. This is not a distant thing. Uh, Yafo gets its fair share. Uh, I woke up one day with the smell of uh, eggs in my room, and apparently it's not the smell of eggs, it's the smell of human blood. Uh, my neighbor was murdered uh, by somebody in her family uh, for getting uh, a divorce from her husband, et cetera, et cetera. The police arrived. Police usually arrives within 45 minutes, uh, half an hour. Uh, the police arrived, and when the police arrived, uh, they were taking the forensic team, was like unloading and everything, and uh, of course, the whole neighborhood came to see, and lo and behold, the father of the victim shows up with a, with a, a plate of knafe, a big plate of knafe, and he was giving it away to, to, to the bystanders. I am not a police detective, but I think he's happy. I think he's happy for some reason. It's hard to say that this person is in charge or is a person of interest because, but again, we go back to the flag, the army. We are in charge of keeping those people safe. Uh, a family member of me, a family, mem a family member also related to me is in a women's shelter and she got death threats from her husband and uh, it just goes on and on and on. The state does stuff. But uh, we have to take responsibility and do more. Yes, but the, um, my, my question is, I'll try to be more uh, direct with this elephant in the room. Um, because, okay, the, what, like the reason, the root reason, because, you know, if, if a brother... Culture. It's in the culture. It's in the culture. In the culture. You said it. Um, but uh, it's in the culture. And like if a, a, a boy, an Arab boy, grows up in a home, right, where those are the values he's being taught, that if your sister is gay, she should die. There's nothing the state can do to change it when you get to school, it's because you grew up with this culture. So how do you go and change? I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. It's, uh, if, if the, same, the same flag that gets three tons of paper 
from Iran, from the middle of Iran about the nuclear facility and the nuclear everything that they have. And our prime minister stood and behind him, all the paper that was, that was just in Iran a few hours ago could find and educate. Uh, there's a survey about meat in the Middle East and who are the most populations that eat meat. Israeli Arabs and Palestinians were among the highest uh, population, the highest population that consumes meat. Uh, in the Middle East, why are they holding surveys for meat? Because meat is a big thing in the Arab culture. And there's a reason why Israeli Arabs and Palestinians eat a lot of meat, because life is good, we allow it to be. Uh, the same thing happens is that if we allow those things to happen, which we don't in, an in a direct way, but in, in, a, in an indirect way of not to paint it for you guys, if we're sitting here and there's a shooting right outside, what's, what's going to happen over here? Everybody's going to leave, the police will show up, there will be an investigation, etc., etc. You call up the police when a shooting happens in, in, in one of our towns, they show up 25 minutes later, they pinpoint that location that they have arrived, and they would just go. It's not an interest of the people. Where are we headed with that? We, we had uh, killing on the honor of the family, terrorist attacks, uh, education like I got. It's a free-for-all. Have we woken up and realized it? Yes, we have. We're still like hitting the brakes on the car that's moving way, way faster than we anticipated. Um, it's, a heavy, it's a heavy subject. Go and look it up, look it up yourself. Um, we're opening more police stations in the town. Since 20, 2016, I don't want to leave you with a grim, uh, uh, the grim look on your faces. Since 2016, uh, we've opened uh, close to 20 police stations, new police stations. Uh, the Israeli uh, police- Only two got burned. Uh, no, only one. Oh, okay. <laughs> only one. Uh, Sorry to ruin that. <laughs> Uh, we're drafting more Israeli Arabs into the police. Uh, there are more uh, benefits to Israeli Arabs who are drafting to the police. Uh, the law has yet to change. The law has yet to change, and I'm not speaking vaguely. Each law in Israel gets updated, gets uh, a new thing. Um, I used Would to you do death punishment for uh, killing for the honor of the family? Uh, death punishment? No, I, I'm very against the death punishment. I, I very much... Uh, uh, I like the approach of the state of Israel and the death punishment uh, is because if we kill somebody for killing somebody, uh, we're kind of defeating the whole purpose. Um, so what would you do, like a whole life sentence, minimum any, sentence? Anybody, anybody who's, who, who uh, proves himself a threat to the community should be, there's a whole place, there's a place for those kind of people. Uh, unfortunately, those places have proven to be a, a luxury, places of luxury and often find themselves in the news with uh, the, the recent escape we've had uh, with the uh, uh, security prisoners, uh, the recent relations uh, that we see between uh, pr uh, prison guards and prisoners, et cetera, et cetera. But so, I was, I was just, just before, I used to volunteer for the police on my free time, uh, and there are laws that are not updated, uh, few laws that are not updated that could be helping our community, and it's overlooked. It's very much overlooked. Um, uh, One of the best ways to effectuate change in a democracy is to have represented, uh, representative officials, elected officials in the government that actually look after. Do you think that the uh, Arab members of Knesset that we have in the, in the parliament today represent you or represent the community? Uh, the Arab representatives don't exactly represent me. I like the change. I like the approach. I like the sitting down on one table and discussing. Uh, I also like that. Uh, I don't like the fact that they're waving another flag other than the Palestinian one. There is no flag for the Negev. There is no flag for Tel Aviv. There is no flag for Jerusalem. There is an Israeli flag, and that's it. If anybody uh, sits on a table and has a different flag, a different interest uh, than the one that should be at the Knesset, then that's a problem. I don't feel represented by the Israeli. Uh, Israeli Do you think they Arab. represent the majority of Arab Israelis? They represent the majority of the people voting. So there's that, uh, other than the, the elections and how the elections are held in the, in the Israeli-Arab community is very different than the one in Tel Aviv over here. I myself witnessed uh, rigging of the boxes. There's a whole uh, thing that they do of rigging votes in the boxes. How so? Uh, I was an inspector. Uh, and what, uh, back in the day when I was in Umil Fakhim, and uh, there's a Jewish guy at the room usually uh, that uh, is a representative of one of the Jewish parties. You really want to get stabbed, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so here, I'm telling you the secret. Uh, what I witnessed, this is what I witnessed, is that they were giving him shoko all day. 
They were fitting him shoko and lachmania all day. And the guy goes to the Choco bathroom. Milk. Shoko, shoko milk. Goes to the bathroom at the end of the day. And every time he goes to the bathroom, suddenly a thousand people would vote. The real question is who had to clean that bathroom? Oh, I, <laughs> I didn't get to that part. Um, so, so you don't feel they represent you or, and you're suggesting that possibly the elections in the Arab-Israeli communities are fraudulent? Not suggestion. I'm saying uh, that it should be improved, and it is improved. They're introducing people, uh, investigators with body cameras, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen a push, and I don't understand this push because this adds the integrity of the legitimacy of the state, and it's our democracy system. We've seen what happened at the US during the last uh, election. So if this thing helps, it doesn't matter if you're from the left or right. It helps your legitimacy, therefore you should be for it. So if there's no real re representation in your view, would you consider running? Consider running? No, I would not, unfortunately. Uh, I don't, oh, don't have a scoop now. <laughs> no, I want, I want to serve the community hands-on. I do volunteer a lot. I, uh, I like working hands-on. Uh, uh, I, uh, I do a bachelor in education. I'm doing a bachelor in education. I'm almost done. Uh, one of my things I learned is, uh, uh, I learned is uh, people with disability. I touch base on that subject a lot, and I decided to go on into that field. So I'm, I'm working in that field more and more. Yeah. So first of all, thank you so much. Very inspiring. Very inspiring. I think what we'll do is we'll turn to the audience, and if you guys have questions for Yahya, which I'm sure you do, uh, we'll try and extend a mic to you. Just keep it, keep it short and talk loud so everybody can hear you. I, I'm, I'm going to start because I'm, okay. I'm loud and I'm here. Thank you so much. Very polite, very diplomatic. You're really nice. Where's the, where's the friction on the road for you? Uh, I'm a big time Zionist. I'm a very Zionist person. Uh, I hold uh, Zionism as part of my very core uh, identity, it goes to my identity. Um, there's a lot of dirty laundry that I don't share, but I'm willing to share with you on an exclusive for two nice Jewish boys. Uh, <laughs> I ask myself a lot. I'm not the only one. I couldn't be the only one. I'm not the only one who goes to Tel Aviv and work. There's almost two million Israeli Arabs. I cannot be the only one. And obviously I'm not. There are many people who have chose this path. Not the publicity, uh, the public side of it, but uh, on the other end, there are many Israeli Arabs that are working for uh, uh, integrating Israeli Arabs. A great organization called Atidna. Uh, shout out to them. They do a great job of taking Israeli Arabs uh, to trips and offer this non-formal education to Israeli towns. And uh, the, they, teach Israel, they teach the kids about Zionism and about the land of Israel and the history. Um, I, as a Zionist Arab, and I am an extreme, and when I say an extreme, I mean I went to the army to be a combat soldier. I went uh, around the world to, to represent Israel and empower Jewish communities. I went all the way to, to, to one side, so I can prove that you can go all the way over in the spectrum. And then I found myself at a very, at a, in a place, uh, between a, a, hard, a rock and a hard place, uh, is that I don't fit in in the Arab community, and I don't fit in in the Jewish community. Hard for me to find an apartment. Why? Because I'm an Arab. Hard for me to get accepted for a job. Why? Because my name is Yahya on the CV. Hard for me to get a reply, a phone call back, uh, getting service. I don't know how many times it's the oldest trick in history where some Arab calls a gym or like a, a something and asks for to sign up for a place and stuff gets refused. Another Jewish guy calls 30 seconds later, gets accepted. Uh, those things happen on every day, and we have some true Zionist warriors that fall very short when it comes to those things. There's a lot of dirty laundry. It's very gray and gray, and not very black and white. Uh, if you're uh, the Israeli community is is a wonderful community. We are brothers in arms, and we are uh, caring for one another. If anybody's car gets breaks on the side of the road, everybody will stop, and etc. But we fall short on connecting with the Arab community for some reason. 
you know, I want, I want to say one last thing to you, Yahya, before we end this. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. It was really inspiring. Um, thank you. When, when uh, you were asked uh, about yourself, about your background, and, and you, you were very modest about it, but, you know, this, we are a very borderline libertarian podcast, so we usually don't rely on the state to solve our, we don't, we, we don't think it will solve our problems. Um, and I, I think it's the same for the, for the Arab population, but when I look at you, and you said I was, I was lucky to become who I am, to have uh, those values, so to me, it's, it's a bit more than that. Like, you had those values instilled in you, right? You, and you made a choice. And to me, if you made a choice, then any young Arab can make this choice. It's his or her choice to make. And to me, that's the hope I can take from this uh, conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'll be around uh, for right now. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to the two nice Jewish boys and the Arab boy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Which is also nice. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. No, great question. I hope I answered everything. I hope, really hope that you walk away tonight with uh, something. I hope that you, this will not be just another evening, another nice event that uh, Jay, where's Jay, organized. Please walk out of here realizing the weight that is on my shoulders as Israel's ambassador, as living in this complicated uh, place in the Middle East. Uh, we don't have uh, an easy task. The struggle that they started in 48 uh, and pre-48 pre did not dissipate, did not end. We're still carrying out those missions. Uh, a lot of Israelis will tell you we got Israel on a silver platter, but somebody needs to still hold this platter. Uh, so on this evening, thank you so much, and I'll be around. Thank you. Guys, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Yahya. I want to thank Soho again for hosting us. Thank Ooh, you so thank much, Soho, for hosting us. It was amazing. I want to thank Jay from TLV Salon. <laughs> subscribe. They have a mailing list. Go to tlvsalon.com and subscribe. And you can also adopt a Safta, also a very a be beautiful initiative by Jay. Um, and subscribe to the Two Nice Jewish Boys podcast. You're invited. Thank you, guys.